I think about, okay, if I have a certain window of my life that I have to live and there are things that I want to make, there are people that I want to play with, there are experiences that I want to have, right? The more that I can harness my attention, the more I can be sure that I'm filling my time on the planet with those things that fill my good life buckets. So to me, if you think about it, attention is life. It's that simple. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can avoid burnout, improve your productivity, and activate your creative mind, all through the simple act of slowing down. Now, if there's one theme that has pulsed beneath this entire first season of Hurry Slowly, it is the topic of attention. Because it is our attention, perhaps more than any other faculty, that suffers when we live our lives in a rush. And in today's episode, I tackled the topic of attention with surgical precision in conversation with Jonathan Fields, a man of many talents. Jonathan is a serial entrepreneur, a writer, a learned student of mindfulness and yogic practice, and the host of the popular podcast, The Good Life Project, in which he interviews a diverse cast of characters about what makes life worth living. Jonathan has also been spending a lot of his time of late thinking about a concept that he calls exquisite attention. And in this interview, we break down the idea of exquisite attention into its component parts. Two complementary states that Jonathan calls focused awareness and open presence. We also discuss the very practical role that exquisite attention plays in our ability to stumble into lucky opportunities, as well as to recognize something called emotional bids, a key factor in sustaining healthy working relationships and romantic partnerships. For context, you should know that this interview was originally recorded in front of a live audience at the White Hotel in Brooklyn. Now let's dive in. We're both kind of obsessed with the topic of attention, mm-hmm. which I think is not really surprising since attention has become a little bit our most precious resource in this era where we're constantly being bombarded with information and demands and updates. Um, and I was thinking about my obsession with attention, and I feel like it almost comes out of this like anger and frustration. You kind of just like get out of my face, you know, like, so I can think, so I can like do my thing. And it's a sense of like pushing things away, right? So that I can kind of get focused. And I think a a lot of people in the room probably feel like that, right? Like you're kind of frustrated and you're kind of like, ah, you know, and I think that makes us think about things like getting better at saying no, at setting boundaries. But of course, that's a really negative impulse, right? And so I think there's kind of two sides to this kind of coin of attention, if you will, right? And saying no is kind of one side shutting things out, but then the other side is um, more about saying yes to certain things. And I feel like you're going to have something to say about kind of that side of it. So maybe you can um, start by kind of telling us how you came to your obsession with this idea of exquisite attention. Yeah. I mean, completely agree. And I think it's kind of funny because when you think about, you know, like you want to say, get out of my face, 
most of us are actually saying that to the device that we're holding in our own faces. <laughs> um, so we're like hand, like directing your hand to actually like remove it from your domain. Um, I think for me, it's really interesting that you sort of introduced the negative frame. We're so focused on that and we're so focused on technology as being a bad thing. And, um, and I know you have, you know, like deep thoughts on distraction. Um, when I think about attention and when I think about, you know, I think about, okay, if I have a certain window of my life that I have to live and there are things that I want to make, there are people that I want to play with, there are experiences that I want to have, Right the more that I can harness my attention, the more I can be sure that I'm filling my time on the planet with those things that fill my good life buckets. Um, so to me, if you think about it, attention is life. It's that simple. You know, if wherever you, your, your attention lands, that is for that window of time, your life. You know, so if your attention is on something which is meaningless without purpose to you, um, then your life for that window of time is being devoted to something which is without meaning, without purpose, right? And the problem is that if we're now being presented with a bazillion opportunities to direct our attention to something that is without meaning and purpose, then we blink and all of a sudden that's our life. You know, so what happens if you actually take, uh, you know, take this beautiful tool, you know, and say, okay, so let me understand how to harness it, use it for good. And if I start from the basic assumption that attention is life, um, then how I cultivate my attention and direct it is how I live and cultivate my life. Um, so to me, to not sort of spend time obsessing about this to, to a certain extent is sort of saying, I don't particularly care how my life unfolds. I wanted to go a little bit more deeper into this idea of these two different sort of types of attention, one which is about kind of shutting out and one which is kind mm. of about opening up. I think you and I had an earlier conversation where we were sort of starting to touch on these two um, different types of attention that you could kind of deploy in different situations. Can you go a little bit more into that? Yeah. So, um, sort of like two sides of a coin, right? Um, the thing that allows you to say yes to something is your ability to say no to other things, right? So mindfulness has become such a buzzword and, um, and when you really kind of deconstruct it and you kind of ask yourself, what is mindfulness? Um, you know, fundamentally, um, the, you know, people who did the original research on it were like, well, it's, it's basically we're, we're walking around in a state of, of mindlessness and it's just being mindful about the way that you're living in the world. But when we look at the word mindful these days, we associate it with a, with an actual practice, which most often is associated with coming out of, um, Buddhist tradition where it's, you know, it's a meditative practice that comes out of Buddhist tradition where it's about, being mindful of everything that goes in, everything that goes out, and not grasping. Um, but when you split that into even more granular practices, what you find is there's sort of like two categories of practice within that, right? And one is sort of along the lines of more focused awareness, right? This is gaining the ability to actually focus your mind and hold it in a particular place for a window of time. 
And the other would be more in the lines of what's often described as open presence, which is the ability to kind of open your mind to whatever is around you, allow it to move through you. If you'd create the visual of sort of like a screen on a screen door and like a, on a porch where you're like, everything blows through it. you like, and it feels it and it picks it up, but then it just blows through. There's no grasping. And that state is sort of just being open to everything, but the practice is perpetually dropping. So it's letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, so that you gain the ability to be present, to notice everything, to take it all in, and then to let it move out. And the letting go practice is the, the side of the practice that actually gives you the ability to then choose what you want to sort of focus your awareness on and hold in your attention for a window of time. So how do you think that those kind of two states feed back into, like, I mean, that you actually sort of access them and use them, say, in your creative practice? Yeah, so one of the things, you know, we probably want to zoom the lens out even higher here, right? Um, uh, to a concept that I would call meta-attention, um, which is, awareness of where your awareness is. So you can't direct your attention or you can't just sit here and be open and let things go if you don't have any understanding of where your attention is. Um, I'll give you a weird example of how this like would visit you in a practical way. In a very past life, I was a lawyer. Um, and I remember being- He means literally like earlier in this life, just yeah. so you know right. what same, level we're talking same, about. We're not same, going that same deep. Same body, right? <laughs> Three past lives ago, <laughs> three reincarnations. Um, and I remember sitting in a government room and you know, like in a little cinder block hole. And I'm literally, I'm taking, I worked for a federal agency, taking investigative testimony under the cover of secrecy. And it's me, you know, and a court reporter and a, and a witness and their lawyer. And the lawyer happened to be a very famous litigator. Um, I was a total noob, really green with what I was doing. And I start asking questions and maybe five minutes in, he's like, this is completely irrelevant. This is not the way it's going to be. You're asking the wrong questions. I won't. And there was, and he starts ranting and like, and I'm terrified because this is like a burly established, you know, like, um, and something in me at that moment zoomed out almost like looked down on the room and said, what's really happening here? It's like an observer. It's like there was a witness inside of us that kind of says, okay, what's really happening here? And, and that thing said, oh, this is really interesting. Um, he's either genuinely angry at me or this is a game that he's playing. He's testing me to see if I'm a green person who he can just steamroll. And how I respond in this moment will very likely determine the outcome, the nature of this entire dynamic and the outcome of what I want to happen. And something in me um, at that moment said, okay, so I get it. It's a game. Let me play the next piece instead of just being terrified and, and getting steamrolled. You know, at which point I said something like off the record, I looked at him and I was like, here's the deal. I represent the government of the United States. If you have a problem with the questions asking, here's a phone, let's call the judge. No objection. Back on the record. Now we go. Right. So my ability to actually zoom the lens out and understand what was happening rather than be massively reactive to what was happening on the surface um, to sort of shift that awareness 
allowed me to completely change the dynamic of the experience that was created. So meta attention is sort of like that. It's your awareness of what's really going on rather than just your reactive automatic response. So for you to be able to actually focus on, you know, on anything, you need to understand where you're focused or not focused at any given moment in time also, which we generally aren't. Use the example of, um, you know, speaking to the lawyer in the room or, and of course you, you know, in daily life are constantly interviewing people, right? And so all of being present in those situations very much has to do with attuning to and reacting to another person in the room. But how does that play out when you're, you know, doing work that's necessarily about being solitary? So I mm. guess- attuning to yourself and also sort yeah. of tuning out interruptions. I'm curious how that kind of idea of this sort of open awareness or open presence comes into play when you're, you know, working by yourself or if it even does come into play. Yeah, I think it does. I think I tend to oscillate between the two, mm-hmm. um, between sort of like a focused awareness and an open presence. I think the, you can almost look at it as convergent and divergent aspects of the creative process. If I'm working on my own large scale creative project, Um, I'll kind of build those modes into my day and into what I'm doing and probably longer term into the process so that I know I have the space for um, sort of this expansive invitation um, of data and experience and then um, a synthesis and integration. And then, okay, so let's channel this into some form of output. I think so many of us focus when we're trying to create something really extraordinary on the output side of what we're doing, on the craft, on the skill side of what we're doing. You know, let me come the greatest master of the tools that I can become, you know, like the, the best skills in drawing. Um, when a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, it's on the input side, you know, and it doesn't matter how good of a drafts person you are. It doesn't matter how much of a master of like, you know, the digital tools you are. If you haven't done the work to actually spend time observing your world and observing yourself and how you respond to different things. So it's like you're observing the outside world. You're also observing your own inner responses. Like we discount our own intuitive hits as valid data when we're creating. Um, How many of you second guess stuff because it wasn't validated externally. It's just like this intuitive thing that you have, you know, whereas to me that is solid data. Um, so many of us discount it, but also many of us are so disembodied that we actually don't even, we're not aware of it anymore. So like part of my practice is to really tune in to, to my physiological responses when I'm doing something, when I'm talking to somebody or when I'm just sitting there writing something like I know when there's a good sentence on the page, because I will start to shake like physically, I will feel it in my body when there's something that is just right, you know, in, in my mind, in the universe. Um, when, I, when I write something, when I say something, whatever it may be, in my creative output process, um, my body tells me. But at the same time, when I'm playing, when I'm taking in experiences from the world, um, I also get a physiological hit. I get a sensory hit about what's right and what's wrong. Most of us are so disembodied that we get those same hits too, but we have no awareness of them. You know, we live from the head up. Um, And that cuts off to me, you know, the difference between a really good creator um, and an extraordinary creator, part of it is skill. 
but part of it is um, is pure awareness, um, and that includes inner awareness. We have to take a short break now, but keep those earbuds in because after the jump, Jonathan and I dig into how attention relates to luck and a fascinating concept called emotional bids, which dictate the health of our relationships at work and at home. This episode is brought to you by SaneBox. Inbox Zero is a thing of the past. We're all so inundated with email now that it's no longer about responding to everything. It's about responding to the important things, the messages that truly matter. And that's where SaneBox comes in. Think of it as an EMT for your email. As messages flow in, SaneBox does the triage for you, sifting only the important emails into your inbox and directing all the other distracting stuff into your Sane Later folder. So you know what messages to pay attention to now and what stuff you can get to later on. It also has nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can drag messages from annoying senders you never want to hear from again. And sane reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. Best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash hurry slowly today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by WordPress. People tend to notice whether you're paying attention or not. And for me, attention lives in the details. That's how you show someone that you care, and that's how you excel at your craft. It's also why I've been an avid user of WordPress.com for years now. Not only does WordPress make it a breeze to set up your website without any design or coding experience, their open platform also offers a huge range of plugins that will help you custom tailor the details of your website to exactly what you need. And that's what I look for in a tool, something that's easy to use, but also incredibly flexible. Add to that 24-7 customer service, powerful e-commerce options, and plans that start at just $4 a month. And it's not hard to see why nearly 30% of the websites on the internet run on WordPress. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash hurry slowly to create your website today. That's wordpress.com slash hurry slowly for 15% off a brand new website. So to kind of um, distill down what you were just saying, I think this idea that open presence is about kind of getting ideas and even, you know, soaking up the beauty of the world around you and kind of um, reflecting, right. And kind of taking in those, um, those inputs and then focused awareness is a little bit more about like going into yourself and processing things and then actually kind of taking action on those ideas. Yeah. Right. I, I think I would say open presence is about allowing and letting go and focused awareness is about harnessing and directing. I use similar concepts for myself. And I think of that as like very much kind of the dance of the creative process. But for you, like, how do you decide, how do you know when to shift, you know, when you're Mm -hmm. like, okay, I got to get out, like too focused. Now I need to. So probably it's easier to tell you in the context of like a specific creative endeavor. 
Um, so I'll use writing because as, as much as I love audio as a creative medium these days, I still consider myself um, first and foremost a writer. So I don't believe I get writer's block, but there are times where I struggle to get words out. But what I've learned about myself is that if the words aren't coming easily, um, it's not because I'm struggling to write. It's because I haven't spent enough time um, in the sort of the gathering state. You know, um, there, I, I haven't developed um, the data set that I need for it to be at my fingertips. Um, and I haven't spent the time just letting it sit there and process until that like insight-based ideation is like, oh, that goes with that, goes with that, which equals this other thing, which wouldn't be evident from any of the pieces of the puzzle. Um, for me, a lot of that is not sort of a deliberate process. It's, it's deliberately creating time um, to not be engaged in something for it to happen. But um, yeah, for, for me, that's, the tell is usually I try and create very directed output as not coming. And to me, I know myself well enough to know that when that happens, it's not a lack of skill or a lack of craft, or it's not that I, I can't quite form the sentences. It's because somehow there isn't, there isn't enough that came in on the input side of the process yet for me to do the job that I need to do on the output side of the process. Yeah, I did a really um, interesting interview with a guy who researches intuition. And he was talking about how um, essentially everything comes from memory, right? Even your biggest mm. insights or all of those ideas. And so when you're struggling in those moments, it's because literally, like, as you say, you haven't created the data set, like you haven't put all of the information into your memory such that your brain can kind of process it and then essentially recombine it in some new and innovative way that then, you know, allows you to figure out that aha moment or to figure out what to put on the page uh, because otherwise, you know, if you don't have that, you just, there's nothing to be done. Yeah. And, and I think startup. like the, the general reaction to that is, um, oh, I need to bounce this off somebody else, or I need to go take a class to become a better writer, or I need to be, you know, I need to go home my craft. I need to hone my skill or you know, like, um, whereas I, I, I just don't think, I think, yes, we need craft. Um, you know, we all aspire to a certain level of mastery if you're, you know, a creative person in the world. Um, my, my sense is that that tends to be the easier default for most of us to try and, you know, like give a reason for the fact that we're not putting out what we want to put out, um, rather than the problem is on the input side of the equation, because that's harder work and it's, it's less immediate and it's less sort of like easily, okay, so learn this skill. Um, and it can come in. Right. It's out of control. Like yeah. you don't know when you're going to find the right, yeah, <laughs> the right, right. piece of data and we necessarily. Suck at things that we don't have control over, <laughs> including life. <laughs> um, so I wanted to shift into a, a slightly kind of different aspect of this, which is still talking about um, this idea of open presence, um, but how that quality of our attention impacts specifically our sort of intrapersonal relationships and even mm -hmm. um, our luck if you will. Um, I realized when you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago that we have um, more than one obsession in common beyond attention, but also um, this, this guy, John Gottman, it, who, um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, is this really amazing um, psychologist who for about 40, re 
40 years has um, studied couples and specifically what makes marriages last. And one of the concepts that he talks about a lot is this idea of emotional bids, um, this act of sort of turning towards someone rather than turning away from them. And I know that you've been thinking about this a lot in the context specifically of attention. Could you go yeah. a little bit into that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by that too. So, so one of the things that Gottman said is that he looked at, he was able to largely predict um, the success rate of a marriage was like five or 10 years out based on a very short, like a 40 minute, just observation um, very early in the marriage and at a stunning high rate of accuracy, like 95% accurate or something like that. And people are like, okay, what's happening here? And it turns out he was using this thing called bids. So every day, all day, we go through our relationships seeking attention and acceptance. And we do all sorts of things to try and get it, especially from whoever that partner is we want it from. And what he found was that um, the marriages that lasted, um, nine, out of ten bid, nine out of 10 bids for attention were recognized and responded to in a constructive way. In the marriages that ended in divorce, three out of 10 bids were recognized. So when you think about that, you know, a huge part of recognizing bids is the ability to actually understand where your attention is at any given you know, moment in time and choose whether you want to allocate it, you know, towards someone else or not. So if you live a largely reactive autopilot, unaware um, life where your attention is just kind of spinning out of control and you really, you're just kind of always somewhere else then, and your partner keeps bidding and bidding and bidding and bidding, and you're somewhere else, even if you love them, even if you want it to work, there's a really good chance that you're gonna fail and that the relationship is gonna fail simply because you haven't cultivated the skill of being able to understand where your attention is and direct it to the place that you want it to be because you want this thing to become beautiful. Um, so I think that's really fascinating, you know, and that, that applies in the context of personal relationships, um, professional partnerships, collaborations, like everything that we do that involves another human being. It doesn't have to be a romantic or a love-based relationship. We are constantly bidding for attention and acceptance all day, every day with the people around us. Well, to clarify for you guys, one thing is if it's, it's actually better if you recognize the bid and, you know, reject it, than just miss it entirely. Cause yeah. he talks about if you, if you reject it, at least then you can have a conversation about that. Right. But if you just don't even see that they're making a bid for your yeah. attention, that's when the problem really and happens. It, and, and at least the other person knows that you saw it and like that matters. And so they'll continue to make bids. Right. You know, it's kind of like, they don't necessarily, they're almost looking for just the fact that you were present more than the fact that they want what they're asking for. They just want to know that you're paying attention. Um, I think we all kind of want, especially in this day and age, like, I, I think one of the biggest pains that we experience is that so, so many people don't feel seen and heard in this world. So like, if you just give somebody a moment of, of acknowledging, I see you or I hear you, it's, it's almost absurd but that is now considered like a huge gift because it is so absent from so many people's lives that when you do that, it's almost like a blessing where it should just be the way things are. Yeah. It's almost like a superpower. Yeah. Um, 
Do you have any thoughts on how that plays out um, specifically with regard to luck? I, mm. You know, when you think about luck um, and you look at some of the research around it, right, the idea of openness is a really strong contributor, right, This, which is one of the sort of big five personality yep. traits, right? Do you think that this kind of factors into that, right, just even being able to see, you know, see said opportunity. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the whole, the open presence side of, of attention, um, is critically important. Um, there's some fun research done by Richard Wiseman, um, where he basically took people and split them into two groups. One group of people self-identified as being really lucky. The other group of people self-identified as being really unlucky, right? So he took these groups of people and he gave them all a newspaper and he said, okay, so Tell me how many, like count the number of pictures in the newspaper and then tell me how many, how many you see, right? The people who identified as being lucky, it took them about three seconds and they're like 42 pictures, boom, done. People who identified as being unlucky, it took them like three or four minutes. I'm probably getting a little bit wrong. The general idea is there. And they gave the exact same number of pictures, right? Three seconds versus three minutes. What gives? So it turns out that these were not ordinary newspapers. These were newspapers that were specially printed on the inside front cover in two inch block letters was a sentence that said something like, there are 42 pictures in this newspaper, stop reading and tell the proctor, right? The people who identified as being unlucky were so narrowly focused on the task and the the outcome and only that and refused to hold themselves open to seeing anything but that, but just the pictures that they missed this thing, which was like glaring saying, Hey, here's the answer, right? The people who identified as being lucky, somehow their brains were much more likely to be very open to the possibility that there may be a faster way. There may be a shortcut. There may be an easier answer, right? So what the experiment showed that was that we're taught very often, you know, that to succeed at an endeavor, you know, like identify exactly where you want to go and then reverse engineer the steps and then put blinders on and focus on that and only that and jettison your attention from everything else possible. And it turns out that may not be true. Um, And along the way, the second part of that experiment is that people who, I'm trying to remember the details. It was something like people who turned the newspaper within a certain amount of time were also given money. Or there was a second prompt that said, go ask for $40. They didn't see that one either, the unlucky people, right? So, so that tells us that there's also very often, there's an even better outcome than the point B that you thought you wanted to go to that will present itself along the way if you hold yourself open to that. But if you don't, you won't see it and you'll end up getting to the place you thought you wanted to go, but you will have missed potentially something, a much better place to land. Yeah, well, and I think um, coming back to your idea, you were thinking, you were talking about not being able to even hear your intuition. So it, it applies externally, right, to being able to see opportunities that surround you, but also I think internally as well, right, mm. to to not be so fixated on whatever, say, plan you have devised for yourself that when like, you know, that kind of like creative muse like whispers in your ear that you're like, oh, okay, you know, that you hear yeah. it rather than you kind of just are sort of like, oh, I don't know, just, you know, like it sounds like noise or static and you kind of keep going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it would have been really interesting. I don't, this wasn't part of that original experiment, but I would, I would have to imagine that, that um, 
there was, even if you didn't visually see those giant block letters, there was something in your body that was screaming to you, stop, read the block letters. And the people who identified as unlucky, they were, they were so disembodied. They had turned off sort of like their awareness of what their body was telling them that didn't register. You had raised um, in a talk that I saw that you gave, talking about this idea of how attention relates to expectation mm. and this idea of the Pygmalion effect um, and some of the research around that, which I think is an interesting kind of follow-up to what we were just talking about. So there's kind of like how the quality of your attention affects your ability to see the opportunities around you, but then also how the quality of your attention actually affects the you know outcomes around you or other people's performance even. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. Um, you know, people talk about Steve Jobs' classic zone of distortion or field of distortion, um, where somebody would like, I've got nothing. And he's like, maybe not in the friendliest way possible, but you know, like would demand that, yes, you actually have so much more that you can tap into. It turns out that um, when you bundle uh, deliberate intention with positive expectations, uh, you transform somebody's capability to perform. Um, this was seen on the most basic level and, and it's known as a Pygmalion effect. Um, really interesting study that basically sent a team of psychologists into a school with little kids. Um, beginning of the semester, they gave them a test and it was an IQ test. Then they told the teachers, okay, so here's the deal. You can't tell any of these kids, any of this, but here's a group of kids that were like off the charts, brilliant. Do not tell them, do not treat them differently nothing. And then they vanished. They came back at the end of the year, right? They retested all of the kids, same test, right? And those same group of kids tested as performing at a much higher level once again. But here's the rub. When they talked to the teachers in the beginning of the year, they lied. These kids were no different than anybody else. They tested the exact same on the test. So what happened during the course of that year? And it turns out what happened is that the teachers unwittingly believed that these kids were capable of so much more. And in ways that they didn't even understand, like a thousand touch points along the way, they gave them attention that they didn't give other kids. And they set their expectations of what these kids were capable of doing at a higher level. And by doing that, these kids actually performed at that higher level. So then the question was, can you actually take that? And there was a lot of pushback about that study too, by the way, <laughs> because you're sort of the, you're manipulating people. Um, but the question that came out of that was, well, what if you actually told the teachers the truth and just had them sort of like act that way anyway, like give this group of kids like more attention and set your expectations higher for them. And the theory was always that, well, that wouldn't work then because the teachers would kind of know and they wouldn't give them the same amount of love. And they also the kids would pick up on the fact that the teachers were faking it. They couldn't act that well to really convey believable expectations and give them, they wouldn't give them the same sort of like little bits of attention all the time. And some early research actually backed that up, but then there's been like a, another wave of research, some of it coming out of Australia that actually shows that you can actually teach this and train teachers to be able to sort of behave in this similar way in a way that feels authentic. Um, and the, in a way that doesn't feel like you're being manipulative or contrived. And you can actually start to create 
you, you can increase the capacity of other. So in the context of, you know, if you're working on a creative project with somebody, or if you're leading a company or a team, you know, to be able to actually know that you can change, you can, you can make very simple shifts in the quality of your attention and the quality of your expectations of the people around you. And that can make a very powerful difference in their own individual capabilities. Um, that's big, you know, we're, we're looking for like all these big technological shifts and this is like subtle things that can really be game changers. So last question, do you think that speed is antithetical to the idea of exquisite attention? It's a really interesting question. Um, I think you will exhaust your ability to sustain the state of exquisite attention a lot faster um, at higher speed. And then it becomes a race to between like how fast you can get to the end versus how much longer you can sustain this state because maintaining a state of sort of like exquisite attention is hard. <laughs> um, um, and moving really quickly um, and being hyper-focused is hard. Um, I also think that you may be able to sustain the state, but as we were talking about, like with some of the Wiseman stuff, um, speed will get you from point A to point B and keep you present and in the moment, but it also may strap on blinders to all like the myriad of beautiful opportunities that will drop into the trail or just off the trail along the way that would have taken you on a magical adventure had you been going slow enough to see them. And um, so I think, I, I think there's sort of like a balancing act that you do. Um, speed will get you from A to, A to B faster, but there may be so much better places to be than B. Yeah, you're reminding me, I had this professor in college and she was telling me how her sister really didn't like poetry. And she was like, why don't you like poetry? And she's like, when I'm going from like point A to point B, I like to go in a straight line. I was like, oh, it's so sad. You miss out on so many things. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the best things that have happened to me in life haven't happened on the line that I first plotted. You know, it's when I've had the willingness to you know, let things go off the rails a little bit. I mean, it was the second book I was writing on uncertainty. I was interviewing all of these world-class creators across a wide variety of fields. And one by one, they start telling me, okay, so you can create something really good by plotting exactly where you want to go, outlining it, making it really detailed, and then kind of like filling in the gaps. You don't create something world-class that way. You don't create something that changes paradigms that way. You create it by starting out with the plan and working really, really, really hard, but you've got to stay open along the way to the possibility that you may be wrong uh, or that there may be way better things out there um, that are going to drop in and take you in a totally different direction. But we are terrified of doing that because that takes us into, you know, Joseph Campbell's abyss. That takes us into uncertainty land. And we are really poorly equipped to live there for long windows of time, even though that same place, you know, where you stumble, there lies your treasure. You got to be willing to sort of ride out your time in stumble land to find that beautiful treasure. Happy accidents are an essential part of the creative process. 
and there's something that we can easily miss out on if we focus too rigidly on being productive, on doing and doing and doing without ever taking time to pause and reflect. I think about this natural give and take, like zooming in and zooming out. Zooming in to buckle down and execute on your ideas, and zooming out to look at the big picture and see if you're still on track. These days, I think most of us live about 95% of our lives in this zoomed-in state. We walk around with blinders on, zeroed in on our smartphones, looking to our email or our calendar to tell us what to do, oblivious to the richness of life unfolding around us. But looking up and being open is just as important as focusing. It's sort of like if you took a hike in the mountains and you just stared down at the ground the whole time and never took in the views. Is the point of hiking to exert yourself or is it to take in the beauty of nature? Like the creative process, I think it's a little bit of both. It's about that dance between challenge and reflection, zooming in to execute and zooming out for inspiration. Next week, I'll be sitting down with Adam Greenfield, who is the author of an extremely smart new book called Radical Technologies, in which he describes how our ever-increasing use of digital devices changes our behavior in truly fundamental ways. We'll talk specifically about the massive impact that the smartphone, big data, and living in a networked world has on our lives, for better and for worse. It's a truly thought-provoking conversation and one of the last interviews on the season, so don't forget to tune in next Tuesday. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you left us a review on our iTunes page. Every rating really does help us build momentum and find new listeners. And now, it's time for your final moment of zen. I've also come to very genuinely believe that the average human being is capable of so much more than than they believe that they're capable of. So over the years, I've done the work and I've done the practices to be able to really focus, to give somebody like a, a very generative and generous, intense sort of, you know, like window of attention. And when you bundle those two, it's pretty stunning to see what people will do. It's stunning to see what people will try to do. It's stunning to see how much longer people will attempt to do big things um, when they know there's somebody who's sort of part of their team, um, who sees them, who hears them, and who believes that they're capable of doing more um, than maybe even they think they're capable of. This episode was produced by Matt Susich, and our theme song, Calm Revelation, was composed by Devin Craig Johnson. If you would like for me to drop you a line when new episodes come out, you can hop on my email list at the podcast website at hurryslowly.co. I do curate a pretty primo weekly newsletter, if I do say so myself. Thanks again for listening, and remember to take your time. <laughs>